Yeah, freedom from the guilt of sin through encountering Christ. Yeah. Yeah. For me, two things that came to mind were, one, I love mountains. So there's a moment in Yosemite National Park where I was with Stephanie, and I took off on a day hike, a little evening hike, and I saw the sunset from this incredible rocky cliff. And another thing that comes to mind that's a little more vague, but is a, mo- is a moment where I'm with my, my immediate family, Stephanie and my two boys, and when things are kind of settled down and everyone's getting along, and I just feel free to enjoy, right? To just enjoy my family, that freedom. Um, one thing that I think about, uh, Stephanie asked us last week, um, wh- you know, how we define freedom. And my first thought about defining freedom was doing whatever I want, right? Oh, man, doing what, that's the, especially for a parent or of young kids, you know, that freedom to just do whatever I want. Um, But the deeper I went, I realized that my most fulfilling moments of freedom uh, do have to do with doing things that I want, for sure. Um, But they've all come at, at some kind of a cost of going upstream kind of in some way. Uh, they're kind of the fruits of a long journey. Uh, for me, when I, I'm with my immediate family and there's love and harmony, I know that that didn't come easy. That moment didn't come without effort and love and pouring out. Uh, when I'm able to get on top of a mountain, I know uh, there's certain things that I've decided not to do that I may have wanted to do as far as my diet and my exercise, right, that make me free to do what I really want. Freedom, uh, freedom that we encounter in Galatians is always about love. Freedom is freedom to love. Christian freedom is freedom to love. I'm not sure if I did what I needed to do to get the slides in. I didn't get my, my scripture slides in. So I'll have you look for a Bible in front of you. It's probably in the Lord I Need You summarizes where I'm at with my slide procedures ability. Um, so we're in Galatians. We're in chapter 5 verses 7 through the first chunk of 6, and I'll skip around and I'll direct us to where we're going. So if you have a Bible, that'd be great, and and it's great um, if if I start to lose you, you know, you just get into the Bible and read that so that that you're not distracted. I'm going to try to get out of the way of the word. Um, But we're starting in verse 7 of chapter 5. And the Apostle Paul says, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. So for those of you who are just joining us, we're in Galatians, and and Paul is encountering this church in Galatia that people are telling them, you need to do more of the works of the law, specifically get circumcised, um, but then probably all the rest of the things that come with Jewish identity and, and all these long list of rules, he's saying, they're saying, you need to do all those things. And Paul's saying, no, don't do it. You're free to another way. You're free to live by the Spirit. Uh, you're free from, from kind of legalism 
or performance-based or works-based or kind of keeping yourself from being judged-based relationship with God. Jesus says you're free from that. Uh, But then he sees that they're not that free from it. That there's this way that this mentality, um, I'd call it maybe kind of like lowest common denominator morality. Like if anybody has a problem with it, I'll just do what they say instead of doing what I think is right. You know, uh, that kind of cowering that, that comes into that. And what Paul says that I think is a really interesting metaphor, but I'm not a baker, is a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. There's this thing that once it gets put in there, it just kind of, the nature of it is to spread. That you don't have to do anything. In fact, by being passive, this thing is going to spread through everything. Uh, I have a, uh, an acquaintance who is... Um, He's a professional trail runner. I shouldn't have said that um, because Stephanie wants me to t- quit talking about running. <laughs> and, and, and I trust that she's a voice for many of you. Um, but but he's, he's really public about um, his struggles with addiction. And he summarizes addiction this way. He says, addiction is very much like a river or a stream. When it has that tight hold on you, it's so easy to just go down that current, to be swept away by it. When I first got sober, going upstream against the stream was quite difficult, one of the most difficult things I've ever done. The more you do it, the easier it becomes, but it's always in danger of slipping back downstream. I have to be constantly vigilant, one day at a time, not to slip back into that downstream current. So this is an image that is like the yeast, right? There's something that's just, if you, if you sit still, you're going downstream. The yeast, if you sit still, it's going to permeate the whole thing. Uh, and this is an image that resonates with me. So I'm going to be talking a little bit more about upstream or downstream life. And I think this is what Paul is talking about when he's talking about both legalism, but then he gets into other ways that we can become enslaved too. Uh, there's kind of two kinds of downstream life that don't result in freedom for Paul. And one is that legalistic moral purity. It's a legalistic moral purity, and and the result of it is self-condemnation usually. Or, if we're not condemning ourselves, thinking how bad we are by not doing all the things that we're supposed to do, uh, then it quickly... flips to self-righteousness or judgment. Um, to, for me, I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian home, and so the, the examples that stand out to me was the way I was taught morality. One of the favorite uh, pieces of scripture was don't cause anyone to stumble, um, which I think was kind of taken out of its original context. So, so I asked, you know, Dad, why don't we drink alcohol? And it's like, well, because... You could cause somebody to stumble if they knew that their pastor had a beer on a Sunday 
than somebody who's an alcoholic, you know, it might make them go to, back to drinking. It would cause them to stumble. Um, so, so that was one case. But then it got even more, oh, because, you know, I wear a tie because I don't want to cause people in my church to stumble because they'll, they think I should wear a tie, and they're really conservative like that. So anything that would make somebody kind of judge or something, and we squirm down. And when we load up ourselves with all of those burdens... Uh, we, we don't feel free. We feel enslaved by everyone else's expectations, everyone else's quibbles, and, and eventually we're not free to do the thing that we're called to do, which is love. Sometimes we hold back from loving people who might be doing something that somebody else thinks is wrong. Or we become self-righteous and judgmental in ways that keep us from loving each other. Uh, that's kind of my old school example. Uh, the new school example that I'm thinking about is this downstream that we're experiencing, I think, in American society of polarization. Uh, it usually seems to express itself politically, political polarization. I was reading uh, up on some of the surveys and dynamics about this, uh, and there's a downstream way that our culture keeps getting more and more divided and hostile to each other. Uh, studies show that Americans are increasingly segregating themselves by political parties in our communities. So more and more the zip code that you're in uh, is going to reinforce your political perspectives, right? So you're separated more. Uh, and then that our political culture is more antagonistic. During the 1960 presidential campaign, only around 10% of political advertisements were negative. Can you imagine that? One out of 10 political advertisements would be negative. And in 2012, only about 14% were positive. Right? And I'm not an apolitical person, so I can see the way that this is downstream. I'm not saying uh, because, because they did it, and then now we need, to do it, we need to defend ourselves or do it back, right? Or this is what seems to work, this is what seems to get traction, and the results are really important. So there's a way that, that passively, this is downstream. This is the yeast that's going to continue to grow and divide us. Other studies show a Pew poll, uh, a 2016 Pew poll, found that uh, 47% of Republicans said Democrats are more immoral than other Americans. And 35% of Democrats held the same view about Republicans. Our social networks uh, are making these, work, these, uh, these feelings worse. Our families are being affected. A recent study found that Thanksgiving dinners were significantly shorter <laughs> in areas where Americans share meals across party lines, right? Our connections with each other, right? And, and, and these, are, these are realities that, um, that many of us live and experience. And many of us know that there are are sometimes good reasons for. Uh, we know that it's important to speak up about injustice. We know that it's important not to be passive uh, when we're faced with things that, that we feel like are hurting our society or hurting each other. But the downstream of this kind of polarization 
tends to be that same kind of downstream of that um, that I experienced as kind of conservative moral purity kind of culture uh, is that we're less and less free to love. We're less and less free to live into who God's called us to be in love. In uh, As we go down to verse 13 in Galatians 5, Paul goes on, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And he starts to get in uh, to a different thing. It's out of that kind of moral or... Uh, partisan kind of righteousness and self-righteousness, uh, checking all the boxes, uh, and it's, it's in to our relationship with ourselves. We are called to be free, but do not use freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is filled up in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, Watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Do you catch that contrast? I've been kind of sitting with that contrast this week. The contrast between how I feel when I am right in an important argument and how I feel when I'm acting in love, when I'm in a community of love and connection. One of them feels... Uh, incredible energy around it, uh, incredible passion, but not very free. The next step always has to be the same, same thing, right? And I'm stuck in it. I'm compelled. But there's freedom in keeping the one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul talks about... Uh, not using our freedom to indulge the flesh. And uh, that's a Greek word, sarx, uh, that, um, that can strike us across time and culture in a lot of different ways. Um, Paul is using that, and he sometimes uses the word world. Uh, it really is talking about kind of a downstream tendency of us to enslave ourselves. Uh, so the worldly systems include those things like, um, and he doesn't call it partisanism, he calls it factions, right? Uh, it includes things like that, but it also includes the ways that um, our lack of self-control in other ways can enslave us. Addiction is one we we're talking about, right? Uh, that, uh, that our flesh, just doing what I want day in and day out, um, if I do that in a real impulsive way, kind of what makes sense on a raw, like what my body feels like it wants at this moment, um, that's not going to lead me to a place of freedom. And so Paul's saying, we don't use our freedom to indulge the flesh, rather to serve one another in love. So I say, this is verse 16, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with one another. So that you are not to do, he's blowing my definition of freedom here. He says, you are not to do whatever you want. Ah, oh, man, that's what I thought freedom was all about. Do whatever you want. 
Um, but if you are led under the Spirit, you're not under the law. So this is not a kind of a weird dichotomy. He's saying, on the one hand, don't just do whatever you want. But on the other hand, he's saying, well, if the Spirit is leading you to something, then do it, right? You're, you don't have to worry about all the rules. Do what the Spirit's leading you to do. And that requires a level of self-reflection and, and a little bit of self-suspicion, if I'm honest, uh, that I think is important to the Christian life, that's important to real freedom. It's, a, it's really important if, if you're a person who makes goals and tries to achieve them, you already know this, right? You already know that my day-by-day, step-by-step actions have to be in line with that last want, not the want to sleep in, right? You know, some days. Um, but you might also know that flexibility is important. And, and Paul's talking about this, uh, this dynamic that if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So if that's still confusing, oh, yeah, I had an example. In my house, this is, this is uh, kind of about the end goal type thing. In my house, sometimes we want to go to the beach for a day. And we have two kids under eight years old. Uh, so, so there's a way that I'm doing what I want by going to the beach. But there's another way that if we're going to get to the beach, none of us can do what we want, right? If we're all doing what we want, then somebody's making a carnival, somebody is like, you know, like watching TV, watching cartoons, I'm going for a run, Stephanie's trying to pack everything. That's how it actually plays out, um, right? We have, to, we have to put aside some of those first order desires to get to the next level, to get where we actually want to go. And there's ways if we give in to all those impulses, we actually aren't free. Uh, if it's still confusing, Paul wants to clarify. And so he gives us these two lists. Um, and, and the famous one that I get to, to preach, and hopefully if you don't um, remember anything else, just go back and read the fruit of the Spirit again. The famous one is the fruit of the Spirit. And we'll get to that love, joy, peace. It's amazing. Uh, and then uh, the other one is a list of vices. So Paul is drawing on this tradition in Greek rhetoric of virtue and vice lists. It was a very common form of rhetoric that uh, as we go, um, as people go along in a speech or a discourse, they give a list of things that are obviously to be avoided and that are obviously good. And it helps us clarify where we're going. Uh, some people like to, uh, to kind of pick apart the list and to, to dissect every single word. Um, and I resist that for two reasons. One, because we don't have time to do that. Um, but two, it doesn't seem like that's, that's how it was being used. Um, so, so in the context, I don't think Paul is actually trying to get us to quibble over the details of the words in this list. Um, because he starts... Uh, in verse 19, you can read this. It's, the acts of the flesh are obvious. So if it's not obvious to you, you know, you may be losing something in translation. You know, you may want to check yourself. But, but what Paul's trying to do is unite everybody who's listening and reading to say, like, obviously we don't want that. 
and then he comes out with a list uh, that I'm going to read our translation of. Uh, The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This list is divided into a few sections. First is kind of these, like, fleshly type things. The word sexual immorality here is porneia, and it's this um, hybrid of words that have to do with both sex and slavery. Uh, the, the obvious context of what, um, what Paul's readers would have heard first when they heard this word is something like um, enslaved temple prostitution that's kind of used in, in worshiping cults. So there's these deep layers of exploitation of damage and harm, and Paul's listeners would have said, oh yeah, for sure, we don't want to go with that. Um, They would have heard something more like the Jeffrey Epstein kind of of thing when they heard this word. And that's not to say that that the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about sexual ethics and and that we don't have to be suspicious of ourselves in in other ways besides that. But that's that's how the original hearers would have heard this first. Later uh, versions, um, people wanted to edit, and they added in things like adultery because they thought, well, maybe that's not really included in what people are hearing when they're hearing sexual immorality. And so they added that later. Uh, And then uh, as he keeps going down into impurity and debauchery, I was doing some word studies on this, and the context that these words are used in, um, in Greek literature, these Greek words, it's like, Serious stuff, right? Like, I, I don't want to repeat or read all the instances of the debauchery mentioned, but it's this really out-of-control ways uh, that were common in the time. Um, and if you know anything about kind of Greek and Roman um, cultures and some of the brutalities around that, um, you wouldn't be too surprised with, with um, Paul's kind of condemnation of that. Uh, witchcraft here... I thought was noteworthy that um, it denotes the word has to do with both poison and kind of witchcraft. So the sense that would have come across is like you go to a witchcraft worker to kind of get poison to kill somebody, right? So there's these deep aspects of lack of health. But then the things that translate uh, fairly straight ahead 